Seven, second book of the Bible, as you know where Exodus is. We just started Exodus last week. We're going to go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, a wonderful study. So it's good to see you. all of you come out on Wednesday night, Wednesday night that's damp and cold and, and all of that, but it'll green everything up. So um, just to remind you, a couple quick announcements in your bulletins. Guys, we have breakfast on Saturday at, at Golden Corral, 8 o'clock, so join us for breakfast and uh, we're looking forward to that. So Saturday, the 12th, men's breakfast. And then um, on Sunday evening, of course, we have our Sunday morning services at 8.30 and 10.30. We're going to continue as we just started in Matthew's Gospel. We'll be in Matthew chapter 3. And then um, on um, Monday, ladies, you have an event, and that is having dinner together at Hunan. So uh, if you're going to that, if you can sign up so they can plan and call ahead and make sure they got enough seating for you on Monday. So everything else is in your bulletin. Go ahead and take a look at that. Tonight we want to just look at and continue to study God's Word in the book of Exodus here. And, of course, Exodus is a continuation of the book of Genesis. And as we know, the Exodus deals with the, the exit, that's what the word means, the departure from Egypt, the children of Israel, who had been in bondage for 400 years, the book of Genesis gives us some insight as we know that Abraham was told in Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham, that your descendants are going to be many. As you look up at the sky, the number of the stars, and that's what's going to be the number of your descendants. And then God would tell Abraham that, that your descendants are going to be in a strange land and there for 400 years while I deal with the iniquity of the Amorites. And so, uh, but I'm going to bring them out, Abraham. And so Abraham was told that that was going to happen. And then Jacob, as we see, he was also told that, uh, Jacob, as you're going down into Egypt, because you recall that the events that took place that we kind of reviewed last week, that Joseph ended up in Egypt. He ended up being the prime minister of Egypt. And uh, there was famine that was in the land that covered Egypt and Canaan. And so Joseph uh, eventually revealing himself to his brothers that came to him to get grain and food, um, we would see that at the end of the book of Genesis, that Jacob and his family would then go into Egypt. And so Jacob, Genesis chapter 47, uh, we see that he was told that you're going to go down to Egypt and you're going to become a great nation and then you're going to come out of the land and I'll bring you back into the land. And so the gap between the end of Genesis is we see the death of Jacob, we saw the death of Joseph, to the beginning of Exodus that we began to look at last week is about 280 and 300 years. They're going to spend 430 years from the time that they leave Egypt and going out into uh, the desert, out into the wilderness wandering, a totality of 430 years, as the scripture tells us. And so Moses doesn't begin his ministry in, in coming to Pharaoh, as we're going to see um, as we continue, till he's 80 years old. And as I discussed last week, that Moses lived to be 120 years old, and his life is easily broken up into to three you know, 40-year periods. The first 40 years that we saw uh, as Moses was born in chapter 2, and then uh, through chapter 10, as we saw that Moses uh, was born, that decree had gone out by Pharaoh, that all the male children should be drowned in the Nile River. Uh, he was one, that Pharaoh, that looked out and saw that the children of Israel were populating greatly and becoming mighty, and he was afraid. He was afraid that if the enemies came in and attacked Egypt, and Egypt was the world power at this time. Egypt at this time is at the height of her power and and, and glory and riches, and and yet they were still uh, ones that uh, their neighbors or their enemies would desire to come against them. And so we know that it would be Pharaoh that said, listen, these Hebrews that are multiplying, and there's probably between two and three million of them, that they can join in with the enemy and they can overthrow us. So they're a real threat. So he came up with a plan, first of all, to put them in affliction, to put them in slave labor, and they would be building the supply cities, that is, building up the military cities and, and the other projects that we uh, know that they would be involved in at Pithom and Ramses. And so he was hoping that would curve the population growth, but it didn't. And so he made that decree that you midwives, what you're to do is kill the male children as soon as they're born. The midwives who feared God said, we're not going to do that. And it would be God that would bless them 
for that. But Pharaoh then said, listen, all the male children are to be thrown in the Nile River. And so that decree went out. And so Moses was born as we opened up chapter 2. He was beautiful, born to uh, Amram and Jochebed. And it was Jochebed, his mother, that, that saw he was beautiful and hid him for three months. And then she knew that she couldn't hide him any longer. So she made a little ark, put him in the little ark, floated him down the Nile River. It was Moses' older sister, Miriam, that was watching the sea what would happen and of course it was Pharaoh's daughter as most of us are familiar with that portion of scripture that we finished with last week that saw Moses and she had compassion for baby Moses and so Miriam would go and get Jochebed his mother to nurse him and so we ended at verse 10 and the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son so she called his name Moses because I drew him out of the water and Moses means being drawn out and so verse 11 now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their business and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his brethren between verses 10 and verse 11 there's a 40 year gap the first 40 years we know from the scriptures that Moses would be raised in the palace of Pharaoh we know that as um, Stephen in Acts chapter 7 is given his account before the religious council there in Jerusalem, that he's talking about the history of Israel. And he, he tells us that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of Egypt. He was mighty in word and in deeds. Matter of fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that it was Moses that was next to be in line to be Pharaoh. And also that he was one that would lead the Egyptian army against the Ethiopians. We know about this time that the Ethiopians came up and attacked Egypt. And matter of fact, the historical accounts tell us that they had a relatively easy time when they first came into Egypt. And so they continued to go. And Egypt was in real trouble at this time. But Moses would lead the troops of the Egyptians against the Ethiopians. So what we know that the scripture tells us he was mighty in words and in deeds. He very well could have been one that was next in line to be Pharaoh. So he could have been Moses, the most powerful man on the face of the earth at this time. He very well could have been. But it's interesting as well that as we get insight to this first 40 years, the Hebrew chapter 11 tells us Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin, esteeming the approach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. And that's quite an amazing statement, isn't it? I mean, here's Pharaoh, you know, that is raising Moses up as a son. He is mighty in words and deeds. It's Josephus, if he's accurate in his historical account, is saying that he's next in line to be Pharaoh. And Egypt at this time, with all the, the riches and the luxury and the power that, that Moses could have had, and he said, no, I'm not going to do that. But rather, I'm going to go out and, and suffer affliction with my people, the people of God. Rather than enjoying, and I like the way that it's phrased there in Hebrews chapter 11, passing pleasure of sin. And that's the thing that as Christians we need to understand. You see, Egypt, the world, will give you pleasure. It, it will allow you to be involved in sin, obviously, but the thing is it's a passing pleasure, and we need to understand that. That there is pleasure in sin for a season, but the end of its way is death, is what the scripture says. And so it was Moses, and I think, how did Moses have a heart like that? I mean, here he grew up in all the wisdom of Egypt, and, and was learned in the philosophy, and the history, and the culture of Egypt. He's there in, in Pharaoh's palace, but yet he would give that all up. And I go back to what we talked a little bit last week, that I believe that it was Jochebed, his mother, that as she was one that was nursing him and taking care of him till that time where she would have to hand him over to Pharaoh's daughter to be raised by her and by Pharaoh himself, that we know, I'm sure, that she prayed for Moses. And she quoted the scripture to him, and she would sing praises to him. And I think that she, as well as her husband, Amram, would pray for Moses during those years. And parents, I want to remind you the importance that we pray for our children, that we be sharing with them the word of God and raising them up in the ways of the Lord. 
That as we saw recently in our Ephesians studies, that fathers, you are to train your children in the ways of the Lord. That we have a great responsibility as, as parents in doing that. And as, you know, my heart aches for kids these days because our kids are being lied to. And what we're seeing in our society with our children, we see the violence and the, and, and the things that they have to face. We probably all heard about and, and, and perhaps you saw the video of a girl that got beat by her supposed friends as they called her over so they can put it on YouTube. And you see, that's not an isolated incident. You can talk to any law enforcement agency and they'll tell you a big problem is, is these club fights that are coming out and kids that are doing these you know, violent acts and, and beatings and things like that so they can put it on YouTube. It's a cool thing to do. And how are kids, you know, what they're facing and the crimes against their children and the lies that are told to them. It's so important that we be ones as parents praying for our children and raising them up in the ways of the home uh, of the Lord and in a godly home to where God has spoken of and He's a priority. That we here at Calvary Chapel, these these little ones and the ones that went upstairs, you see all these kids that went upstairs? We got a lot of kids that are beginning to come because they're they're being loved here. And and they're learning God's truth and they need that especially when they go out on their own. Because there's going to be a day that it was, you know, as we saw Jochebed handed Moses over to Pharaoh's daughter, and she would continue to pray for him. And I'm sure that she prayed every moment that she had a chance, every day that she was alive for Moses. And one day that we're going to have to hand our children over as they will go out on their own. And they'll be out in the world. They'll be out in Egypt. And we'll continue to pray for them. But right now, while they're under our roofs and, and while we have opportunities, take very seriously ministering to your children the things of God. Because they are beautiful, just as we see here that Moses, that he was a beautiful child. Your children are beautiful in the sight of the Lord. And so may we pray for the kids here and pray for our young people that are here and encourage one another in doing that. So 40 years have passed, and we see that it came to pass that Moses was grown, and he went out to his brethren, and he looked at their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren, so he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. In verse 13, And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said that the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? And then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. Now there's some other insight that Stephen gives to us in this account there in Acts chapter 7, particularly in verse 25, that I think it's important for us to know. So here is Moses. He chooses to go and suffer affliction with his people. But here's the thing that a lot of people don't you know, recall or, or it, it isn't mentioned a whole lot. Moses at this time here, he sees himself as the deliverer. He sees himself as delivering the children of Israel right now out of Egypt. And that's what Stephen makes account for in verse 25 of Acts chapter 7. Uh, we see that uh, Stephen, again, given that account, he's talking about Moses. And he says, and seeing one of them, he's, he's speaking of Moses, suffer wrong. He defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed, that is Moses, that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver him them by his hand, but they did not understand. So here is Stephen. He's telling us that Moses thought, surely the children of Israel understand that I'm here, out here suffering affliction with you guys. I'm going to deliver you. If there's anyone that can do it, it's me. I mean, I'm mighty in deeds and words. If anybody can challenge Pharaoh, it's me. And he thought that they surely are going to understand that I am going to be the one that's going to deliver them from this affliction and this bondage. So here's Moses. We see that he is buttoning everybody's business right now. He sees an Egyptian that is beating on a Hebrew. And so he takes that Egyptian and notice here that it says here in verse 12, he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian. Let me tell you, it's bad news when you start looking this way and you start looking that way to see if anybody's looking when you're about ready to do something. Isn't it? You look this way, look that way. Is anybody watching before I pull up this thing on the computer? Look this way, 
look that way? Is anybody going to see me do this act? Or behave in this way? Or watch this thing? Moses should have looked up. So anytime that you find yourself in a situation where you're looking this way and you're looking that way to see if anybody's looking, it's not usually good, is it? But what you are to do is look up. And understand and realize that the Lord sees you. And I've said this before. That's one real way that you can tell where you're at with the Lord when nobody else is around. When you know that nobody's to your left, to your right, nobody's around. What is it that you're watching? What is it that you're doing? What is it that you're thinking about? And that's a real good way to, to really get a good gauge of where you're at with the Lord spiritually. And always remember that the Lord sees and he hears. And that's one of the things that Moses is going to understand here as he's going to be speaking with God here at the burning bush in just a little bit. So he looks this way and that way. And so he kills the Egyptian, hides him in the sand, and then he goes out the second day. And here are two Hebrews that are fighting. So he says, you know what, why are you striking your companion? And one of them turns and says, why you make, you know, who made you a prince over us? Who made you the leader? You're a self-appointed leader. So Moses saw himself as a leader. And here these guys are saying, who made you a prince over us? Are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? So something happened. The dogs went and dug up the Egyptian or a hand popped out of the sand or something happened. And it was found out. And so Moses is afraid. So he realizes that Pharaoh's going to find out about this and he's going to come after me. So we see that he ends up um, taken off as, again, Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. So he goes to Midian. Now, here's the thing. And, and if I had a map, I wish I could show it up here. But, you know, in the back of your Bibles, most of us have a map in the back of your Bible of the Exodus and where Mount Sinai is. And they always put traditionally Mount Sinai there um, in the Sinai Peninsula. And that's where the children of Israel went. But here is Moses. He goes to Midian. And if you look at ancient maps that they recovered, that Midian is always in the very western part of Saudi Arabia. And Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, speaking of the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb, that Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, is in Arabia. So I believe that Moses, he flees from Egypt here, and he goes to across the Red Sea, or up over, and he comes down into Midian, the very western part of Saudi Arabia. Now, the Sinai Peninsula is Egypt today. It's always been Egypt. It's always been under, in, at this time, in their territory. And we see over and over again that the children of Israel were to go out of Egypt. They were to leave Egypt. So I believe they left, and they went into that area of Saudi Arabia. It's interesting. I should show that film that's called In Search of the Real Mount Sinai. Have any of you guys seen that movie? Pretty incredible, isn't it? Where in western Saudi Arabia, a couple guys went in there, and where they believe where the real Mount Sinai is, they found a mountain that was burnt. The Bedouins that have been there for thousands of years said, yeah, that's the mountain of Moses. And it's charred, and then they found all kinds of things that something significant happened there. They found a huge altar where there was, um, you know, that was made, perhaps where the golden calf was set upon that altar, bounds around the mountain. There was a, a large uh, valley that you can look at, and they filmed all of this, that there was a, a huge reservoir there at one time. Of course, the water, you know, enough water for two to three million people would be a lot of water. Um, there's, you know, pits that they found of sacrifices that they did, all kinds of things. You go to a traditional site and you can spend a lot of money going into Egypt, going to the Sinai Peninsula where they say that's where Mount Sinai probably was. They haven't found anything. They haven't even found a sandal. Any evidence that there was a large group of people that were there, you know, at one time. But here in Saudi Arabia, and the government fenced it all off and put up a big sign that says, do not enter, no trespassing, and they got guards that guard it. And so you can't go in there because they know something's there. And so there in Midian would be in Saudi Arabia or what was known as Arabia. So he goes and he, he is there by the well. And um, in verse 16, now the priests of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. 
And then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up to help them and watered their flocks. And when they came to Ruel, their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. And so he said to his daughters, And where is he? And why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And so we see here that Moses flees to Midian, and Midian was, as you remember from the book of Genesis, was the son of Keturah, the wife of Abraham. And so here is the prince of Midian um, from the family. We'll see it in the genealogy as we move into Exodus, I believe, chapter 6 or 7. But we'll talk about that a little bit more. But here is um, um, Ruel. We're going to see that his name's going to be referred to as Jethro, that he has daughters here. And so here is Moses. He's in Midian. He's by a well. Obviously, it's, it's hot and it's very dry country. He's thirsty. And all of a sudden, these, these sisters come up, these women, to water their flock. And then there's some other shepherds hassling them. And so Moses deals with them and waters the flock. And they end up and they go and tell their dad, Jethro, that, hey, there's an Egyptian that helped us. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, these seven women that came up and, and watered the, the flock. Doesn't it remind you of anything back in the book of Genesis? You remember Genesis, that it was Abraham that sent his servant to go find a bride for Isaac. And where did he go? He went to the well. And there would be Rebecca that would come. And then it would be Jacob that would go to Pandanaran again. And he would be by the well where he saw Rachel. And he fell in love with her right away and kissed her. And then he wept. You know, all of that. So I guess the place to pick up girls was at the well. So, <laughs> Dad says, why did you leave them there? You know, there probably isn't too many guys out here in the desert. <laughs> you need to bring them back. So they go and get him because the next verse, verse 21, then Moses was content to live with the man and gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. And she bore him a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Moses was content. He was content. I mean, think about it. All of a sudden, Moses, who had the riches of Egypt, could have been the most powerful man, anything that he asked for, anything that he wanted. And he said, no. And he thinks, I'm going to be the deliverer of the children of Israel, and it doesn't work out. All of a sudden, he's afraid, and he has to flee from Pharaoh, and he's out in this hot, dry desert, and it is hot there, and it is rocky, and it is barren, and there's not a whole lot of people that are there. And he's out there, and he's content to live where he is. He's going to be hurting his father-in-law's sheep, and he's going to, of course, as the scripture here says in verse 21, Sipporah is going to be his wife, and he's going to have a son. But he was content. Scripture says that you and I need to learn to be content. And I think that can be a hard thing in our society today because, you know, our society says that you need more. If you really want to be happy, you need to have more and have these things. And, and, and we can be so so you know, discontent where we're at with things. It doesn't mean that we can't set goals. It doesn't mean that we want to desire to do our, our very best in what we do and our ministry to the Lord. But sometimes we get so dissatisfied and we grumble and we, we murmur because we think that we should have more, or be further along or whatever. And sometimes the Lord wants you, even if you feel like that you're in a dry, deserted place, to learn to be content. And that's something that, that's a powerful lesson that all of us have to learn. And it's not an easy thing to learn. But Moses would learn to be content. Because you see, if you're not content, and this is one of the things that we can need to teach our children as well, that we're trying to teach our children, because you know how kids are. They're, they're little us, you know. Well, Dad, I want this, and we want that, and here's the list, and all the time, and, and all of this. And, and sometimes, well, my friends have these things, and it's like, listen, I, I understand that, but you're not going to have this, and you're not going to go there, and you're not going to be involved in these things. And, and it's something that they learn from a very young age, that if they have more and this and that, they're going to be happy. It, it's a deception of the world. We're going to talk, actually talk a little bit about it on Sunday morning uh, in, in um, 
in a couple weeks in Matthew chapter 4 in the temptation of Jesus. That is, is the enemy, the tempter that came to Jesus and said, you know what, you're hungry, turn these stones to bread. And I think about what was so awful about turning bread to, to, you know, stones to bread. But there's a very powerful lesson in that that we'll talk about a week from Sunday. But the thing is, is we can be so discontent, we can grumble and murmur about where God has us. And you see, Moses is going to have to be prepared for what God has for him. Because we're going to see that it's going to take 40 years to get Egypt out of Moses. And he's going to send Moses to the backside of the desert where he's not going to be known, where he's not going to be popular anymore, where he's going to be humbled, and where God is going to prepare him. You see, in verses 12 and 13, he was trying to do things out of the flesh, wasn't he? And the Lord is coming along and saying, you know what? You need to have your confidence in me and your satisfaction in me. So if you feel like that you're in a dry, deserted place and you think I should have more and I should be more this or more popular or have that promotion or whatever, you just be still and let God do that work that he wants to do in you and then through you. Because God uses those that he puts through a desert experience so oftentimes. Just ask Moses. Just ask David. He spent some time out there in the wilderness, didn't he? being pursued by Saul, but God was preparing him. Just ask Paul the Apostle. He spent three years in Arabia in this same desert here as the Lord taught him and spoke to him before he would go and minister. But God will take his time in preparing us. And in that time that he's preparing you, you can trust in the Lord, be content where where he has you and what he's given to you and entrusted to you. And that's what Moses is learning here. And so we see he has a son. And then in verse 23, now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage that they cried out. And they came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. And so here we see that God remembered the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, don't think that God was saying, oh, I forgot. Oh, man, for the last 400 years, oops, sorry. Um, I guess I better do something. Uh, there's Moses there. I guess I'll, I'll do something with him. It wasn't that way. God didn't forget, but God is going to work in his time. And, and it's the same with you and with me. When you find yourself in a dry, hot, deserted place in difficult situations, Sometimes we can think, Lord, is your promises really for me? Do you really see me? Have you forgotten all about me? But one of the things that we learn from the book of Exodus is that he sees you and that his promises are true and he remembers you and he's going to work on your behalf and so you can be sure that his word is true and his promises are true for you. And so in chapter 3, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So between verse 25 of chapter 2 and in chapter 3 is 40 years. 40 years Moses has been herding sheep, not even his own sheep, his father-in-law's sheep on the backside of the desert. So he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God here. And so we're going to see now that this book is going to deal with the next 40 years of Moses' life. The last 40 years, he's going to be called of God, of course, to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. And so here, um, he's in the backside of the desert for 40 years he's here. And then all of a sudden, verse 2, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So Moses is there herding sheep. All of a sudden, there's this bush, and it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And Moses knows that this is not natural. This is supernatural. This is something that that is you know, odd, I'm going to go and see this great sight. Now, there are those that come along and try to explain away this miracle. And what they do is they say there's a, a bush out there in this part of the country, the desert, that it secretes oil, and then when it gets hot enough, it'll begin to spark, is what the bush does. And they're true in that. But don't you think that Moses, being 40 years out there in that desert, would have known that? 
He would have seen that. Second of all here, he says, I'm going to see this great sight. So this is something, again, that's supernatural. That this is a bush that's on fire, man. It's, it's an inferno, but it's not being consumed. And so we see that um, as he goes there, verse 4, Then the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, and God, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place that you stand on is holy ground. And moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So God calls out to Moses. He calls him by name. This Moses out there in the desert, which a lot of people didn't probably know Moses. They had maybe even forgotten about Moses over those 40 years in Egypt. But God knew his name, and God knows your name. And he says, Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. Isn't that interesting? He said the same thing to Joshua in Joshua chapter 5. When Joshua brought the children of Israel across the Jordan River, they're going to go and do battle against Jericho. And Joshua comes and he meets the Lord. And the Lord said, Joshua, take off your shoes for the ground that you're on is holy ground. So what is holy ground? Anywhere where the presence of God is. Another interesting thing that I just thought about is we go through the book of Exodus, we're going to see the priestly garments that are described to us that the priests would wear. But have you ever noticed, those of you who have studied that, there's nothing prescribed for the feet. So I speculate when the priest perhaps went into the tabernacle, at least when the high priest went behind that veil in the Holy of Holies, he went in barefooted because that was a holy place. But be that as it may, here he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, reminding him that he's the God who made a covenant with them, and that covenant is still valid. And Moses here, he has a reverence for God. He knows that, wow, this is awesome, and he's on holy ground, and, and, and he's afraid to look at the Lord because of the reverence that he has. Moses is not going to say, okay, God, how come I've been out here for 40 years in the desert? Why didn't you come to me 40 years ago? I mean, these last 40 years have been a waste. But they weren't a waste, were they? And sometimes you can think when you go through those times where maybe you don't sense the Lord or the Lord isn't doing a whole lot in your life, don't think it's a waste. Because the Lord wants to prepare you for the things that He's doing in your life, just as He did with Moses here. And, you know, I, I, you know sometimes I, I talk with Christians it's like, oh, if I'm so frustrated, if I could only say to God, you know, why this? And, and, or you, you've had people say, if I, when I meet God, I'm going to say, why did I go through this? And why this? And why did you allow that? There's going to be none of that. But as we saw in the book of Revelation, that our cry is going to be righteous and true are your decisions, Lord. Righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. And as long as we stay yielded to him and, and just allow him to lead us, he may lead you through some desert experiences that may last for a time, but he's doing the work and he's refining you and he's getting Egypt out of you. And that's something that he has to do just as he's doing here with Moses. So Moses, take your sandals off. I'm the God of your, your fathers. It is, this covenant is valid. In verse 7, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Parasites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. In verse 9, and I'm sure that Moses is saying, yes. Notice the Lord here says, I've seen, I've heard, and I know. I've seen, I know, and I've heard their sorrow and their oppression. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And you may be here tonight, and maybe you're going through a time of sorrow. 
Maybe you're going through a time of grief or difficult days right now. I want you to know something. That he sees and he hears and he knows. And he wants to work on your behalf. And he wants to show himself strong in your behalf. And he wants to show you that he's faithful and his word is faithful to you. And so he says to Moses, I I see their sorrow and affliction and I'm going to bring them out of Egypt. I'm going to deal with Pharaoh and I'm going to bring them into a land, a good land flowing with milk and honey, a fertile land. And, And Moses, I'm going to drive out those inhabitants, all the ites that are in the land there. And Moses, I'm sure, is going, all right, that's great. But then all of a sudden, verse 10, Come therefore, therefore, and I will send you the Pharaoh, that you may bring my people and the children of Israel out of Egypt. I wonder what Moses thought. Me? Everything was good up to that point. But me? Verse 11, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Forty years God took to get Moses to answer in that way. Forty years previously, I'm going to be the deliverer. They should understand that. But they said, who made you a prince over us? Who made you a judge over us? You're going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? He has to flee. And for 40 years, God brings him to the point where God says, now is the time, Moses, that you're going to deliver the children of Israel out of the hand of Pharaoh. And Moses says, who am I? Who am I? I talked to the youth kids last Sunday night about this, this very thing, because, you know, all of us can go through where there's a lot of pressure on to be somebody and, and be noticed and be popular and all these other things. When God has called us to humility, and the one that God uses in a great way is the one who says, Who am I? And we're going to see that the Lord's going to teach Moses that the focus isn't on your abilities, Moses, and your might, but it's going to be me that's going to show myself strong on your behalf and for the children of Israel. And God, he wants us to bring to that point where we give the glory to him and we humble ourselves and we say, Lord, who am I? Well, I choose the foolish and the weak things of the world, God says. Moses here is making excuses. This is one of the, some of the excuses that he's going to make. He's saying, who am I? But the thing is, he's brought to that place of humility now. And the Lord does that work in us, bringing us to a place of humility where we say, Lord, I need to depend on you because it isn't by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And Lord, I'm going to depend on you and give the glory to you. And that's the man and that's the woman that God uses in a powerful, mighty way. I mean, Moses knows the, the, the seriousness and the hugeness of this ministry that he's now called to, to go to Pharaoh. Who am I to go to Pharaoh? And, and to, to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. And so in verse 12, he said, I will certainly be with you. And that's something that you and I need to remember when God calls us to ministry. Because there have been times, you know, I think, you know what, Lord, who am I? When it comes to pastoring this church, I think this is so above me. But the Lord says, I'm with you. And you allow me to work through you. And then there's going to be fruit that's going to be produced. And you're going to see me working in a wonderful way. So we see that in verse 12, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel, and they say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, Who is his, or What is his name? And what shall I say to them? Verse 14, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I like that. God declares his name here. I am who I am. You go tell the children of Israel, I am has sent you. So they translated Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. It was no vowels, unpronounced, 
you know, was because of no vowels. They're not surely sure how exactly to pronounce it. And so the scribes, the ancient scribes, would, would make it that way. And so they say Yahweh. Sometimes it's translated Jehovah. But whenever you see capital L-O-R-D in your scriptures in the Old Testament, it's the name. And so some of the ancient scribes, because they reverence the name of God so much, they would just write in the name. But I am I am who I am. And he's going to show them who he is. He's their deliverer. He's going to be their salvation. He is going to break Pharaoh. He's going to bring the plagues down upon Egypt. He's going to bring his promises to pass. I am who I am. Now, a lot of people come along and they try to define God. He is who I say he is. And there's an awful lot of that that's going on in our society and in our world today. I'm sure that some of you, you've, you've heard this. It's a big talk over the last month, and it's getting a lot of, of, of you know, notice and stuff. But Oprah Winfrey, whenever she, you know, is one that um, will recommend a new book, and, she, of course, Oprah Winfrey is very much into the New Age movement. And she recommended a new book just about a month ago. That's Eckhart Tolle's The New Earth, exposed and so the new earth is something that she's promoting and and people are going out buying it but what she did is she now has this web class on the on the website that you can get onto that begins to have classes in this this book that that Eckhart Tolle is sitting there with her and they discuss this book and spiritual principles and stuff and Oprah Winfrey when they first did it there was 300,000 people that joined in that website a month later now there's over 2 million and it's gaining popularity Oprah Winfrey is one that denies the gospel message. She does it publicly. She denies that Jesus Christ is the way to heaven. She denies Christianity and the truth of Christianity. She is very much into New Age philosophy. You can watch the clips on it on this, this website. I don't encourage you to do it, but if you look into those things, you can see very clearly that it is very false what it is that they're talking about. Matter of fact, the things that they talk about come from the pit of hell, and it's deceiving a lot of people. That you don't need to worry about what happens when you die. That, that spirituality and, and God is not believing in a God. It's feeling God. It's like, what is that supposed to mean? Feeling God. But she will deny the truths of Christianity even though she will consider herself a Christian. And it's very dangerous and it's very deceptive. And so you're going to hear a lot more about this. So you might as well know about it now. And you're being warned about it. The things that she is bringing up is nothing but New Age false teaching, and she's a false teacher. And I know a lot of people, millions of people, adore her and the good works that she does, but she's leading people to hell with the false teachings and this, this web class that over 2 million people, who knows how many millions of people are going to join. So they got clips of people coming on, and you know, just normal people saying, oh, now I have a new understanding of spirituality and all of this. And it's deceptive. And it's a lie. And Christians need to stand up and say, this is wrong and we need to pray. Because there's so much of that deception. And you need to understand it may sound good and people embrace it and the wonderful works that she does. But the scripture says that Satan can transform himself into an angel of light. That's how deceptive he is. And we need to be wise in the day that we're in. And I know I sound strong on this. But we need to be ones that stand up and say no and stand for the truth of what God's word says, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is the way to salvation, the only way, that I am who I am. And so man comes along in his arrogance and in his pride and tries to define God. Who are us to define God? God is God. I am who I am. And so God in his word defines who he is. So Jesus, in John's gospel, we see that he's disputing with the religious leaders in John chapter 8. He says, if you don't believe that I am he, then you will surely die in your sins. He had been telling them that he came from heaven, that the Father had sent him. The religious leaders didn't like that. And so they began to argue with him and, and, and said, well, we're descendants of Abraham. You were born out of fornication. And Jesus said, you know what? Abraham was glad to see my day. And they said, what do you mean? 
you're not but 50 years old. And you're saying that you saw Abraham. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am the name of God. He was declaring to be God. I've heard people over and over say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, you haven't read your Bible. Before Abraham, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. The name of God he was declaring. And those religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was saying because what did they do? They picked up rocks to stone him because he was claiming to be God. So he comes along in John's gospel and he makes those statements of deity. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. He is everything that we need. He is our salvation. He is our God. He is our Lord. I am who I am. You go and tell them I am sent you. That's my name. I'm declaring my name to you, Moses. And Jesus declared the name of God. I am. And he is everything that we need. And those religious leaders knew that he was claiming to be the God that was speaking to Moses out of that burning bush. You know, the burning bush, back to the burning bush, and then we'll be done in a minute. The nation of Israel, the children of Israel, were like that burning bush. I mean, going through the fire but not consumed. And as you look at the history of the children of Israel, they've gone through such fire and turmoil, not just with Pharaoh and his decree to kill the male children and to drown them in the river and put them in affliction and bondage, but you look at their history, the, the enemies that came against them and, and you know, the, the story of Esther and then, of course, Herod that killed all the male children two years and under that we saw last week in Matthew chapter 2 and, and all of this. They have gone through the fire. We will see in the future that as we studied the book of Revelation, you recall that we discussed and as we discussed in our studies of the Old Testament that they will continue to go through the fire, but God is purging them and he will see them through. They will not be consumed. God has preserved them, and his promises that he has to restore them is going to come to pass. And I mention that because perhaps we too, we go through the fire, but I want you to know something, that you're not going to be consumed, that he's going to see you through, because I am who I am, and he is everything that we need. He's our strength. He's our guide. He's truth to us. He's our comfort. He's everything that we need. He's our salvation. And he's going to see us through. And so verse 15, moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers and the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. And go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt and the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Parasites and the Hittites and the Jebusites to the land flowing with milk and honey and they will heed your voice and you shall come then you shall come you and the elders of Israel to the king of Egypt and you shall say to him the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us and now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God but I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go no not even by a mighty hand so I will stretch out my hand and will strike Egypt with all the wonders which I will do in its midst and after that he will let you go so God's letting Moses in this is what's going to happen you go to the children of Israel you go and tell them you go and tell them that you know what that that God has visited you, he's going to, to deliver you, go to Pharaoh, he's not going to let you go, but by the mighty hand that I will strike against Pharaoh, eventually he's going to let you go. In verse 21, I will give his people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. You shall plunder the Egyptians. And so, Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for the truth that is declared to us. And so, Lord, we know that you speak to us through your word. And, and Lord, that we know that your promises are true for us. And, Father, even though this is a story that we're familiar with, Lord, I pray that it would impact us tonight, knowing that we can be ones that we can trust wherever you have us whether it's a time where we're being refreshed and, 
and everything's going greater, whether it's time or it's a desert experience. We can know that we can trust in you. And Lord, allow you to work through us and to grow us. Father, I do pray for our young people. That Lord, as we see the attacks against them, and Lord, as we see the things that they have to face, we lift them up to you. And Lord, that we would be ones, as, as Paul refers to Timothy, his mother and grandmother, how, Timothy, you learned from childhood the scriptures that made you wise for salvation, that we would be ones. I pray for the fathers and mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers and uncles, all of us that can have influence on our children. That, Lord, that we would be ones that would give them the truth of God's word. That we would pray for our children. That we would be committed to them the things of God. That he would be a priority in our homes. And, Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom in doing that. Father, I pray for Lord, those of us that are here that have need, that, Lord, that you would work, that you would provide, that we would go out of here knowing that we're not going to be consumed and done in, but, Lord, that, that you're going to work. And, Lord, that you're going to work for good for those who love you, who are called according to your purposes. And, Father, I, I pray that we would just look to you and look up. And not try to react out of the flesh and the things that we do, but Lord, allowing you to lead us and guide us and minister and provide. That our ears would be open to you. Father, I pray that you encourage those who need encouragement. That you bring healing to those who need healing. Lord, I just want to lift up Jim to you as he prepares to have surgery on his throat. We thank you for his commitment to leading us in worship for so many years. And, and Lord, we just pray for healing upon him that you would be with the doctors and the nurses, and as he has surgery on Monday, that he would have complete healing. And Father, we pray for anybody else that's here tonight that, that is sick physically, afflicted, Lord, that you would bring healing to them. And Father, I pray that you bring healing to, to marriages, perhaps somebody that's here or, or those who are here that are struggling in their marriages that there would be healing as they submit to you couples and as we look to you to strengthen and bless those marriages. Perhaps in relationships with children or with others that were brokenhearted over, Lord, that you would bring the healing and wisdom that is needed. Father, I pray if there's anything in our hearts that we know, Lord, that is unlike you and not, Lord, pleasing to you, that we would confess it and, Lord, that we would just look to you for that forgiveness and love that remains. And, Lord, that we would walk out of this place being free, not in the bondage of Egypt or the bondage of sin or the bondage of whatever may be holding us back from really enjoying that abundant life that you have for us. Father, I pray that those of us who are looking for wisdom and direction and what you would have us to do, that we would come to you, the wonderful Counselor, the Lord, that we know that you will be a voice behind us saying this is the way that we would wait on you and be content where you have us right now. And so, Lord, we thank you that you had the very best for us in mind. You've already given us the very best, your son, Jesus Christ. But, Lord, that we would know that you're going to do the very best in our lives now. You've forgiven us. We have eternal life through you. And so, Lord, we can trust you where, where you have us right now. Father, I pray that you take everybody home safely tonight. As the weather is moving in, the roads are getting wet, that, Lord, that you would keep us safe tomorrow as we're out and about. We thank you for the moisture. And, Lord, we just, we just thank you for, for the things that we have. And, Lord, I just pray that we would just keep our eyes on you and our focus on you and our hearts towards you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.